Well, today is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Passion Week, the first Sunday of Passion Week. And we're going to spend some time um, celebrating what has happened and remembering the Lord. But first, let's say a word about worship. Worship is something that we often um, associate with what happens on Sunday morning, right? We gather together for worship. But uh, biblically speaking, worship is something that you should do all of, all of the week. Your very life should be an act of worship. So when you go to work, when you uh, get up and get the kids ready in the morning, when you uh, are going to school and you're doing schoolwork, uh, worship is about presence. Worship is about being uh, present with the Lord, recognizing He is present with you. So worship is something that we do all the time. We bring glory to the Lord's name because we're very aware of who He is and His presence with us. So worship isn't only on Sunday morning. That's just a particular expression of it when we come together as a church. So what I want you to do is I want to have you stand in just a moment and greet one another uh, as an act of worship. And I want you to say to one another, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So stand up and greet one another. Kids, you're also free to go at this time. So all the children. Hi, Lucas. Yep, kids are free to go at this time as well. And the parents who want to have more fun. How many of you are um, feeling that the last several weeks, five weeks we spent focused on Jesus hanging on the cross, and how many of you are feeling you're ready for Easter? You're ready to start celebrating? Excellent. We did our job. This is, uh, this is the beginning of that turn where we start to celebrate. When you look at Palm Sunday... The, uh, it's in John 12. Palm Sunday is in all four of the Gospels. It's really interesting. That's how important it was. The use of palms was commanded in the Old Testament, Leviticus, I believe, for the Feast of Tabernacles. Remember we talked about the Feast of Tabernacles? It's when they come out of their houses for eight days and they live in tabernacles or little tents in their yard to celebrate God's faithfulness during the wanderings. And it was one of the great three great festivals that they honored. And uh, by the time of Jesus, we know from the Jewish writings that the use of palm fronds, palm branches, was very common at all the festivals. The festivals were great times in the history of the nation of Israel. They were there for several reasons. One is God wanted to teach something to them, and he used festivals to do that. So for the Festival of Tabernacles, as an example, they're celebrating God's faithfulness. So that's where they would light the candles in the temple, and that's where they would throw the water out, and they symbolize God's presence with them, the candle, I mean, uh, the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day, God's presence was with them. And the water symbolized God caring for them in the desert, because here they are 40 years in the desert with no way to get water. 
So Moses, remember, struck the rock, and then he struck it again instead of speaking to it. So the water was designed to remind them of God's faithfulness. So God set up all of these wonderful ways to remember who he was and what he had done and how much he loves his people and how much he pursues them and is present with them and lives with them. And uh, uh, Palm Sunday is no different. These festivals are times that we jump up and down and we celebrate and we praise God for what he's done. And so they do two things. They teach us about God and they create a reason to have fun. I look at them as a big party that goes on in the temple. And um, in fact, uh, by the way, we're the spiritual temple. When the world looks at us, do they see us throwing big parties? Do they see us jumping up and down celebrating? So Palm Sunday is the beginning of the celebration week of what Christ accomplished. Matthew, Mark, and Luke present the story a little differently than John does. John is interested in sharing with us one particular uh, message. So he's nuancing, he's shaping his message to communicate one thing. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are going to communicate to shape something different. So this week we have an option, Mark and I do, as we decided, as we planned out the week. By the way, we have a Monday, Thursday, Thursday night. Let me invite you to come to that. You can look in your bulletin or go to the website and find out times and all that that's here. Friday night is Good Friday, and then we'll celebrate together Easter morning. And um, we have a choice to make. We could focus on the human aspect of what happened with Christ, because that's what Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. They focus on the human journey. Um, or we could focus on the theological journey. We decided to focus on the theological journey. From a human perspective, this is the beginning of a very hard week. It's a week filled with loneliness and pain. It's a week filled with crucifixion, execution. It's a week filled with confusion and death because the disciples all scatter. It's a week filled with scratch, people scratching their heads thinking, what on earth is going on? It's a week where people learn uh, they don't really believe in Jesus. Here they worship him with the palm fronds, call him king, and then the very next weekend they crucify him and execute him and kill him. That's the human side of things. What we want to do is help you step back into the throne room of God and look at it from God's perspective. When we do that, this is a week of celebration. That's why we're starting the celebration today. Because he pulled it off. He, he did. If you had designed a rescue operation, would you design it to go down the way it went down? Probably not, right? And yet God did it. This was his plan, his predetermined plan, Peter says in Acts 2. And Jesus knew it. He knew it was going to happen. He walked into this with his eyes open. He knew it was going to cost pain. And he did it for us. So this is the moment, the beginning of Passion Week, when we begin to celebrate what God did for us. John chapter 12. The next day, the crowd that had come for the festival, I'm in John 12, 12. The crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Palm Sunday is the Sunday where we worship the Lord has come home. God has returned home. Daughter Zion was the metaphor for Jerusalem, which was where God dwelt. That's where the temple was. That's where God dwelt. And that becomes a metaphor for us in Hebrews and several other places. Revelation, God has come home. When the king went out to do a battle, if the king didn't come home, you were in trouble. That means he lost. 
So when the king came home, that was a time to jump up and down and celebrate. The king has come home. So Palm Sunday is all about king. The one true living God has come home in the form of his son, Jesus. It's a wonderful time. It's a wonderful way to remember that uh, Jesus is the king. And they called him that. Blessed is the king of Israel. Well, then what happened? How is it just a few days later they put him on the cross, torture him, kill him? Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us that side of the story. Right after this happens, um, now let me back up one verse in John before I tell you what happens afterward. In fact, in verse 9, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Jesus had just raised Lazarus in John. And so the people came and they honored him as king because he did this incredible feat. But the reason that they're there is because of the sensationalism. They came to see Lazarus. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Wow. Sin has really worked its way deep down inside, isn't it? Not only are they going to kill the one who did the miracle, they're going to kill the one who received the miracle. Boy, something tragically wrong. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So the people are there, and they're worshiping Jesus as king. But I think that verse gives us a clue. The reason why they're really giving him homage is because of what he had done. He had raised Lazarus from the dead. They wanted to see more of it. Jesus did not do that. He did not fulfill those expectations. Right after this in Mark, it's in Mark 11, Matthew 21, and Luke 19. Right after this in Mark, he cursed the fig tree. Is that what a king is supposed to do when he comes home? I thought we are supposed to celebrate. He curses a fig tree. Talks about the coming judgment. Then he goes right in and cleanses the temple. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three. He goes right in and cleanses the temple. Is that what a king does when he comes back? When the king comes home, we celebrate? That's not what we expect the king to do, is it? And so what does he do? He goes right to business. He goes into his house, and he starts to put everything in order. And he, uh, the very first place he starts is with the temple. Because you see that at this time, they had used the temple, turned it into a marketplace. In fact, he quotes that verse. And not only was it a marketplace, it was a place where they were, uh, they were exhorting money. They were... They were taking advantage of the poor. So these festivals, these three great festivals, the, na the nation gathered from around the world. The men were required to come, but we know from history that they brought their families. And they would come and they would gather and they would offer sacrifices. If you were poor, you didn't have to offer a, a bull. You could offer a turtle dove. Um, that tells us something about Jesus' family, by the way, what they offered. So they, the poor would come, they could buy a turtle dove in their home country or one they owned and bring it with them, or they could wait till they got there and buy one. So what do you think happens? They jack up the prices, and they begin to charge a little more because they can make a little profit. And all of a sudden, what becomes an act of service and generosity and humility and worship becomes a means of uh, making money. And so Jesus' very first act as the king who comes home is to walk through there and turn over those temples. He makes that whip and he starts whipping these guys and, and he cleans out the temples. The very first act of business is to clean out the temple. 
Well, I don't think they were very happy about that, especially those making money. But the, but the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests, I'm sure they weren't either because that's their livelihood. That's the place where they, they earn their living. It's a place where they do their ministry. If somebody came in here and tore up our church, we would be upset. I'd be very upset. This is where I come every day. It's my, it's my, my job. It's my place where I come and I pray and I meditate and I spend time with the staff and we plan everything together. We pray for you and we have staff meetings and yes, we talk about you. You know, we do. It's a great thing. And we have elders and we talk about you. And it's a great thing and we say, who do we need to pray for? Who do we need to go help? Who's broken and wounded and hurting and needs our care? And so that's on purpose because we love you. So if somebody came in here and tore this whole place up, it would be very disconcerting, wouldn't it? It would be very disruptive. And so Jesus' first act was not what they expected from a king. Well, then he goes on there and talks, goes on from there and talks about the parable of the uh, tenants. Remember the story? The man owned, the, 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 owned some land and he leased it out and uh, they didn't pay their rent. So he sent one servant after the other and they beat the servants and treated them harshly. And he finally says, well, I'll send my son because if I send my son, they'll respect him. And they killed the son and threw him out of the vineyard. That's a symbol of what is taking place this week. The Jewish leadership, they got it. They knew exactly who he was talking about. And so Jesus is making waves all week long. He's creating turbulence all week long in Jerusalem. He's challenging all of their beliefs about who this Messiah is, who this God is. He's not coming home as the king they expected. To come home in all of his glory, break the rule of the uh, Romans, uh, liberate them, raise them back up to a world uh, power again. He's not doing all that. Well, then he begins to prophesy the destruction of the temple. So then they actually got him on this. This is what they got him on, the execution. He accused, they accused him of uh, basically rebellion or sedition. He's going to tear down the temple. He's going to have an uprising, and they're going to rip the temple down. And uh, boy, you just didn't do that. That's not what you do in Jerusalem. Then he talks about the coming persecution, and he concludes with, be ready. Be ready. As Paul says, when Jesus comes, he'll come like a thief in the night when you least expect him. There are no signs. You can't predict it. Some of you may remember the uh, great prediction a couple of years ago, made the national news, that pastor and I in Florida or wherever, said uh, that the Lord is coming back, the end of time. Remember that? made the national news, and then it didn't happen. Remember that? Didn't happen, did it? One of my funniest, funniest newscasts was the very next day, some church with a sense of humor made the national news, put a billboard up on the highway. That was awkward. <laughs> and then in parentheses, no one knows the day or the hour. Jesus said, be ready. Are we ready? Are you ready? I long for the Lord to return. Some days more than others. Some days less. I just got back from spending time with my 98. She's 98 today, 98-year-old grandmother. And um, she's ready to be with the Lord. And uh, I'm not quite ready to go yet. I'm not quite ready for her to go yet, but I know the days are coming. Her uh, hours are winding down. I had a whole day with her, and it was fantastic. Are you ready? Be ready. So that is not what is expected of a coming king, I mean a returning king, 
who comes home from victory. You don't walk, expect him to walk into his own hometown and clean out the temple and, and uh, upset everybody and challenge the leadership and take them on and start warning everybody. Watch out for the experts in the law. Don't listen to them. Don't trust them. They're leading you in the wrong direction. That's not what he expected King to do. He's supposed to come back victorious. No wonder they crucified him. Interestingly enough, John doesn't say anything about all those things. He leaves all that out. John goes right from the palm branches to St. John 12 to John 13, where he's in the private room with the disciples, and he washes their feet. So John is interested in giving us a different version of the same story to help us understand, I believe, from God's perspective, what was actually happening. The first thing Jesus does in John's account is wash the feet. He serves. So from God's perspective, when Jesus walked into Jerusalem as a returning king, his first act was to serve. He became a servant. He became a servant to the point of death. He sacrificed himself. That's the ultimate servanthood, isn't it? It's to sacrifice yourself. And then in John 14, right after that, he, he tells them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You don't have to worry. And I will come back for you. I will remember you. So there's cause of celebration. There's the reason God did not forget us. I will not forget you. I will come back for you. John 14. And then in John 15, he goes from there to the vine and the branches and says to when you are living life and I've sent this comforter, this Holy Spirit to be with you, abide in me, remain in me, live in my presence from now on. Learn how to do it. That's what life is all about here is us learning how to live in God's presence. That's one of the things that we're supposed to be learning right now so that we can learn here so when, the, when we go to the eternal state and sin nature is dealt with, we can jump up and down and celebrate all day long because we know how to live in God's presence. And we have seen his faithfulness when times are hard, and now times are no longer hard. And we will celebrate and party from, for the rest of eternity. All those festivals are nothing compared to what's happening. So that's John 15. So, so John presents the story from God's perspective, not from the human perspective. It's wonderful. Jesus is received as the king, and then he fulfills all the responsibilities that come with being the king, everything that God asked him to do. He served, he sacrificed, he encouraged us, he gave us hope. He reminded us he's coming back. He gave us the rules of the game, so to speak. Just live in my presence. Just live in my presence. Isn't that part of our uh, mission statement? Growing intimacy with God. We had a staff retreat last week, all day off-site staff retreat. And uh, we took um, the visioning team. Some of you know we put together a visioning team. We took all of their ideas in the three areas of our mission statement. And we chewed on them throughout the day. And we talked about what does this mean, growing intimacy? How does that work? How do we help you to live in God's presence? How do we help you to enjoy, even in your darkest moment, which Christ is going through right here, by the way, even in your darkest moment, when you feel the most pain, and I know some of you are in pain, how do you grow in intimacy? How does that happen? We spent the whole day talking that through. 
as a staff, just chewing on it, thinking about it. Where do we go? What's next? We're working on our ministry plan, which you as members will get to vote on in August. And you'll get to hear about it. We're already working on it now. The elders will get to see it starting in May. Some of the ideas that we're bringing forward. And so what does it look like to help for us as a congregation to grow in our intimacy with God? Well, that's John 15. Remain in me. Abide in me. Dwell in my presence. Live in my presence and enjoy it. Don't be afraid of it. So as a congregation, that's what we have to do. That has to come first. That really comes before we go out into the world. We'll come back to that. Then, on the cross, in John 19, Jesus has these great words, it is finished. It is finished. This is very much connected to Palm Sunday and his return home as a king. Just a slight review, you may remember verse 26, woman, here is your son. That was one of the seven statements. We talked about his compassion, his love for his mother and uh, John, how he put them together and created this new humanity. One of his final acts uh, in this torture, process of torture, excruciating pain, loneliness, and hurt, woundedness on the cross was to not forget his mother. And it just reminds you, if he's not going to forget his mother, he's not going to forget us in the depth of his pain. Then we move from there, a couple verses later, in verse 28, and he said, I am thirsty. And we talked about that that reminds us of his humanity. He's thirsty. So Jesus said, I'm thirsty because I'm thirsty. He was thirsty. But the reason why he chose that particular moment to say he was thirsty was a theological reason which John tells us. Knowing that everything had now been finished in order that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. I suspect he was thirsty and could have said it at any time, but he chose that moment on purpose to say he was thirsty. And John wants us to know that this is, a, this is we're viewing this from God's perspective because this idea of being completed or finished is woven through this whole passage. Later, knowing, verse 28, John 19, knowing that everything had now been completed or finished, and so that scripture would be completed or finished, there's a second use of that word, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And then in verse 30, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. It's done. He made it through the week. Today we're celebrating Palm Sunday, the beginning of that week, and we're going ahead and looking at the last statement at the end of the week. Next week, we'll celebrate the resurrection. And with that, Jesus bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Verse 31, now it was a day of preparation, and the next day was a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross as during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. You may remember last week I said we have another conundrum here, in that John, in John, he celebrates the Passover dinner with the disciples on Thursday night, and he's executed on Friday. Um, and they want to take his body off the cross and, and in order to celebrate the Sabbath, because they couldn't work on the Sabbath. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say it's the opposite. They say they wanted to take his body down so they could celebrate the Passover. So what does that mean next week? 
Verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified. They crucified with Jesus. And then those of the other. Can you imagine that? You're at the final, final part of the torment. You haven't quite died yet. So they take this big, heavy mallet and they shatter your legs. Can you imagine? Everything in you would want to fight to pull yourself up with your arms. Shoulders are probably already dislocated by now. They break your legs. You don't have much time left. You could try with all the strength that you have left to hold yourself up, and it's not possible. So eventually you die of asphyxiation. Can't breathe. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. By the way, crucifixion probably qualifies as cruel and unusual punishment. To an extreme. Fortunately, it was only in our world history for a very short period of time. It was very effective. Very effective, but brutal. So verse 34, instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now, I've read several different medical opinions on what this is all about, but remember, John is giving us a theological journey. He's giving us a theological travelogue. He's taking us through this from God's perspective, not from a doctor's perspective. Because the very next thing John says is, the man who saw this... That's himself, by the way. The man who saw this has given testimony, and his testimony is true. John's saying, I was there. I saw it. You can't take it away. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies. Why? So that you also may believe who weren't there. That's us. So that we may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. We'll come back to that one in just a second. So John says he pierced his side and blood and water ran forth, poured out. And um, what is John trying to communicate with that? Let me give you some thoughts. Both of those images of blood and water appear in John's writings several places. In John chapter 3, he's talking about water. And he says to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water in the spirit, can't enter the kingdom of God. Water all the way through is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Ezekiel 36, um, I think he alludes to Ezekiel 36. He says that uh, the Spirit, when the Spirit comes under the new covenant, he'll be like cleansing water, refreshing water, cool, refreshing water. That's what the Spirit will be like. Now, if you live in the desert, that makes a lot of sense. That's a very attractive thing to think about, isn't it? So in John chapter 3, he says uh, to Nicodemus that unless one is born of water and the Spirit... You can't enter the kingdom of God. Water is symbolic for the Spirit. And then in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, he talks about the, that this, when the Spirit comes, it'll become like a well of water that gushes up inside of us. It'll come out of us from the inside. That's what this new form of worship will be like. And then in John 7, he gives us a little bit more information about this whole concept of Water. On the last and greatest day of the festival, by the way, this is the Festival of Tabernacles, what we talked about. This is the eighth day. Jesus stood and shouted in a very loud voice. He's in the temple. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within. They will flow out. See the metaphor? See the symbol? When the Spirit comes to us, he begins to flow out into the lives of others. 
Just in case you missed the point, verse 39, he says, By this he meant the Spirit. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him would later to receive. And all of a sudden we have water pouring out of Jesus. Jesus' side. Then, the whole concept of blood. He talks about blood in chapter 6. Same chapter, or a chapter before. Chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood... You have no life. You have no life. This is the foundation for what we later call the Eucharist, communion, Lord's table, Lord's supper. The Eucharist is just a Greek term that means to give thanks. It's a means of thanksgiving. When we celebrate communion, it's a means of thanksgiving. This is the foundation for it right here. Unless you eat the flesh and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is, not, is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Hear that? This is part of that presence thing. Living in God's presence. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me. Lives in my presence. That's why we celebrate communion every week. It's the one act that God gave us to proclaim and shout from the rooftops that he didn't forget us. He remembered us. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the, the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Your nourishment comes from Christ. That's where it comes. Intimacy. That's just the word we use. It's the same idea. Intimacy. And our goal is to help you Nourish yourselves on Christ. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So, blood and water occur throughout John's writings. In fact, in John 5, 1 John 5, excuse me, 1 John 5, he says, there are three that give witness to these wonderful things. You know what they are? The Spirit, the blood, and the water. 1 John 5. The Spirit, the blood, and the water. Those are the three that testify to this incredible act of what God has done. If you designed a rescue operation, would it have gone down this way? It wouldn't if I had designed it. I would have never thought of this. So I think when John combines these two words at the end, Blood and water came forth. I think he's finishing these ideas that he started in the book. Number one, water symbolizes the Holy Spirit. Number two, the blood symbolizes a sacrifice, which we celebrate right here with communion, but is a clear allusion to the Passover lamb. Remember, we're at Passover during his execution. When Jesus, I mean, when God passed over, remember that? passed over the families who, hadn't, who had put the blood on the doorpost. This is the Passover. In Exodus, we're told that uh, when you sacrifice the lamb, you're to spill the blood before it congeals. Let it run. Let it run. That's part of the act. So blood is very much a part of Passover. Very much a part of Passover. So we're beginning to see a tighter, a closer, a stronger allusion to Passover right here. And look how he finishes. These things happened, I'm back in John 19, 
so that the scripture would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. This is a quote from Exodus, or this, yeah, quote from Exodus uh, 12, 46. On that Passover evening, when you prepare the meal, you're not to break the bone of the Passover lamb. So this is a clear statement that Jesus is the Passover lamb. And as, one, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. It is finished. All the people standing there looked on the one that they had pierced. The guards, soldiers, people standing there, the bystanders. Um, the other gospels give us a lot of information about what happened at that time. John keeps it pretty simple. It is finished. Have you ever finished a big project, perhaps uh, at, job, at your job? Maybe something at school, a big project, maybe a home project you have to do. And it's arduous, it's laborious, it's a lot of work, and you don't, you're not very good about it, not very comfortable with it. And, and you get finished, what do you do? You go, yes, I made it. You ever done that? Ever felt that? This is a statement of celebration. I came to do the will of my Father, so Jesus said. And at the very end, the last thing he says is, yes, I did it. I completed it. It's finished. My part in this journey, I think he's saying, to bring about your salvation is done. Now we move to something very different. Then he, then he dies. It is finished. So we're at Passover. I mean, we're at Passion, uh, beginning of Passion Week, Palm Sunday. The king has returned home, and he begins the journey of helping us understand what a king truly does. He begins to serve. He begins to sacrifice. He begins to make it possible for us to live in his presence. He goes, he prepares a place for us. And then, once he's completed the task, he's done. And he's finished. This week, we're celebrating this. Let me invite you again to come back for a um, Monday, Thursday. That's the night he spent with the disciples, and uh, that's the night he was arrested. And Good Friday, Mark and I have joked many times, is a Good Friday or Black Friday? Well, when we're looking at it from a human perspective, it's Black Friday, but this week we're looking at it from God's perspective. It's Good Friday. We celebrate because even though his body's in the tomb, and they're confused and don't know what to do about it and upset and all of that stuff, theologically, even though his body's in the tomb, he is at work. He pulled it off. He made it happen. It's done. His body being in the tomb should cause us to celebrate. The resurrection was the proof that God had made it happen. It was the proof. So it's called Good Friday in church history, and that's the reason why. Let's pray. finished. Amen. It is finished. Have a good week. Go in peace.